Tuesday's results mean for electing progressive candidates in the DMV, and particularly in D.C., coming up next. Welcome to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for November 6, 2014. I'm Esther Averam. On-the-ground lifts up voices of activists and activism here in the nation's capital and around the blue planet. Thank you to all of our new and renewing members who supported WPFW 89.3, your station for jazz and justice, and especially this show during our fall fun drive. Well, today we're going to talk about Tuesday's elections and progressives. Here in the DMV, the election featured the campaigns of two somewhat lackluster candidates, one by now Mayor-elect Miro Bowser, who fended off a well-funded independent challenger, David Catania. And in Maryland, there was a shocker, to some of us anyway, when Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown, a Democrat running in a blue state, lost his bid to become the state's first black governor. But what do Tuesday's results mean for electing progressive candidates in the DMV, and particularly in D.C.? What lessons, maybe hard ones, were learned by progressive activists working on this election? Joining me today are political strategist Alicia Branson and Danny Siegwalt, attorney Jane Zara, and professor, author, and activist Lester Spence of John Hopkins University. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. Yesterday's protesters gathered in cities around the world under the banner of the Million Mask March, promoted by the loosely organized Internet activist group Anonymous, but attracting a wide range of participants, including supporters of anti-capitalist, anti-war, and pro-Palestine movements. Protesters taking part in the Million Mask March in Washington, D.C., briefly clashed with police when they tore down barricades. Several protesters, many sporting Guy Fawkes masks, were arrested by police. Three protesters at the march in D.C. told RT News that they are concerned about government corruption and police brutality. So we're here again, round two, back again, another global movement, another global movement, which I just think that in itself is just, that speaks in volumes, and that shows that people can get together. Even if it is a trending thing or a social media thing or whatever it is, it's happening. The causes that we're here for basically is the corruption of the government and the cop killings. I mean... The cop killings are out of control in this country. The military-industrialized complex where they militarize the police forces and it's shoot then ask. It's outrageous. It's, we're here to support the First Amendment, but that's what everybody's here. We're all here. We're all human rights activists in the purest form. The thing that's frustrating is because right now we kind of look like we're crazy because we're just shouting, but it's like shouting because nobody knows what to do anymore. Those were protesters at yesterday's Million Mask March that started at the Washington Monument and also went to the White House and the Capitol. London was the scene of one of the largest sites for the Global Day of Protest as thousands gathered in Parliament Square on Wednesday night and later made their way in groups toward other locations including Buckingham Palace and the BBC Central London Studios. The issue of police brutality was also the rallying cry for members of the Black is Back Coalition 
These are organizations which gathered here on Sunday and Saturday and rallied at Malcolm X Park before marching to the White House. Organizers said this year's march, the fifth that the coalition has sponsored, focused on the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the issue of police violence against the black community. The next day, the coalition conducted a teach-in at Howard University, during which the chairman of the coalition, Omali Yashatala, repeated the call for organizers to prepare now to hold protests and acts of disobedience if Darren Wilson is not indicted for the killing of Michael Brown. After that grand jury comes back, be prepared to act on the determination that comes from that grand jury in Ferguson. Next day, we're supposed to be in the streets. Right now, you can go and decide where that's going to be. You can go out and put out your flyers. You can go ahead and call your radio stations. Uh, you can get on, on, on the different shows and say, everybody, this is where we're going to be when, the, when you hear the verdict. If the verdict does not indict Darren Wilson, we're going to be on this corner at 12 o'clock. We're going to be stopping this traffic. We're going to be doing something around this country. For more information about the coalition, go to blackisbackcoalition.org. On the environmental front, 11 people, including two photographers, were arrested Tuesday at the Maryland construction site of a peer-to-service Cove Point LNG, a natural gas export facility. Nine activists wearing blue jumpsuits and yellow hard hats scaled a massive dirt mound at the site. Three protesters were stopped by sheriff's deputies, but six reached the summit and held a banner aloft saying, We are greater than Dominion Profits. All were held in jail overnight. The Cove Point project was approved by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in September in spite of widespread opposition. The activist, Dr. Margaret Flowers, who was among those arrested, said the protesters want to slow down and shut down construction in order to try and to delay this, while other avenues such as the courts are being explored. Dominion must finish construction on the pier by December 15th or else wait out the winter to complete it. In election news, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, it will likely be months before we have the data to assess the full impact of new voting restrictions on Tuesday's elections. But we already do know that their impact is far more than the number of hot races they could have turned. A quick look at the numbers show that in several key races in North Carolina, Kansas, Florida, and Virginia, the margin of victory came very close to the likely margin of disenfranchisement. For example, in the North Carolina Senate race, State House Speaker Tom Tillis beat Senator Kay Hagan by a margin of 1.7 percent, or about 48,000 votes. At the same time, North Carolina's voters were, for the first time, voting under one of the harshest new election laws in the country, a law that Tillis helped to craft. Among other changes, the law slashed seven early voting days, eliminated same-day registration, and prohibited voting outside a voter's home precinct, all forms of voting especially popular among African Americans. While it is too early to assess the impact of the law this year, the Election Protection Hotline and other voter protection volunteers reported what appeared to be widespread problems both with voter registrations and with voters being told they were in the wrong precinct. Opponents of fracking scored a handful of victories Tuesday with voters choosing bans on the extraction process in communities in Texas, Ohio, and California. One of these wins was in the birthplace of fracking, Denton, Texas, where there are 275 fracking wells inside the city limits. Dozens 
of communities voted overwhelmingly on Tuesday for their legislators to pass a constitutional amendment to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission decision, which opened the door for the super-rich and corporations to trample democracy. As they headed to the polls to vote in what turned out to be the most expensive midterm election in history, one in which outside money from undisclosed sources played an outsized role and the number of small individual donors shrank, Voters in Wisconsin, Massachusetts, Florida, and Ohio made clear their desire to end corporate personhood and to get big money out of politics. In California, a public safety measure to reclassify low-level crimes, including drug possession, won a clear victory on Tuesday as voters paved the way for thousands of nonviolent offenders to be resentenced and potentially released from the state's notoriously overcrowded prison system. Under Proposition 47, low-level property and drug offenses, including shoplifting, theft, and check fraud, under $950, as well as personal illicit drug use, will be classified from felonies misdemeanors. Because the law will apply retroactively, as many as 10,000 people convicted of these offenses may now be eligible to petition for early release, and by some estimates, state courts will hand out roughly 40,000 fewer felony convictions each year. As stipulated by the law, the estimated $150 million in state savings will be used to support school truancy and dropout prevention, victim services, mental health, and drug abuse treatment, and other programs designed to expand alternatives to incarceration. And here for our culture and media moment is Richard Prince, writer and editor of the Journalism's Column at the Robert C. Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. That is the nation's oldest organization dedicated to helping media and diversity. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? All right. Lots going over there in Virginia where you are. Oh, yeah. Now, I understand that some writers are disputing this conventional wisdom that African Americans did not come out to vote on Tuesday. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Well, yeah, African Americans did come out to vote, but uh, not, uh, not, of course, uh, uh, to the extent that they did when the president himself was on the ballot. Uh, what I wrote about today was about the fact that uh, all of this is, is uh, interesting in the short term, but we can't uh, overlook what's going on long term, and that is the tremendous demographic changes that are going on in the United States, where people of color will become the majority in 2043. And that doesn't... doesn't um, uh, look good for the GOP, even though they may be having these short-term gains, because their base is built on a shrinking population. Right. Now, I also understand that, I, I think you showed in your column this really objectionable cover on by the New York Post. It just like Oh, you know, yes, yes. When did that run? It showed like that was um, that was the day after the election. Okay, yeah. So it showed Obama kind of like naked, like covered by a barrel, right? And it said like the headline said like stripped or something like right. that. Right, emperor has no clothes. Yeah, the emperor has no clothes. Wow. Okay. And then the other uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about is the uh, editor fired. Was it in North Carolina for calling Michael Brown an animal? Right. Wasn't that something? What? What? what I, I think I think both of these both of those examples are. What uh, the fellow I quoted, William Fry, the demographer, was, was talking about when he talked about the demographic changes, and that is that these changes do have a lot of white people frightened, and you know the, the, uh, some of the some of the election results are sort of the last gasp 
of white people who are afraid of change, of this change that's coming. The other thing I was, point I was making was that there was the, the element of racism that was going on in, in the decision on who to vote for on Tuesday uh, was not very well covered. Some people said, look, I've just got to say it. Uh, the reason that, uh, uh, that, the, that uh, uh, the lieutenant governor uh, lost the candidate, yeah, lost, lost the gubernatorial election in Maryland was because there are some racist people in Maryland who just didn't want a black governor. And the reason that Mark Warner didn't, didn't uh, do as well as he was expected to in Virginia was because he kept being tied to Obama. And, and as somebody else said, uh, people hated Obama more than they loved Mark Warner. No. Okay. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, we're going to be back with you next week. Always a And uh, we'll, uh, we'll follow up some more. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Well, also on Culture and Media, on Saturday night, WPFW is hosting the fifth annual U Street Jam. And opening in theaters this weekend is the big budget space thriller Interstellar. And that is coming to the big screen just after we celebrated the centennial of jazz and intergalactic great Sun Ra. There's lots more happening here in the DMV, so there's no excuse to sit at home. Well, when we come back, all about the elections here in the DMV through a progressive lens. We'll be right back. That was What Rough Beast by the Burnt Sugar Orchestra, which performed Sunday as part of the Along Came Ra Centennial Celebration of Sun Ra, sponsored by 89.3, your station for jazz and justice. Well, on Tuesday in the DMV, Election Day featured the campaigns of two, I guess we could call them lackluster campaigns, right? Um, one in the form of now Mayor-elect Muriel Bowser, who fended off independent challenger David Catania. And in Maryland, like we said before, there was a shocker for some of us when Lieutenant Governor Anthony Brown, a Democrat running in a blue state, lost his bid to become the state's first black governor. In both races, con the conventional wisdom was that the black electorate was not that excited about either candidate. You know, we heard some other theories by Richard Prince right now in terms of the white electorate's attitude toward uh, 
Anthony Brown. And there were early rumblings about a low black voter turnout that would further compound the overall voter apathy during the midterm elections. In addition, here in D.C., the progressive community worked hard for a few independent candidates in particular that did not get elected. In the at-large race for the D.C. Council, there was longtime social justice activist the Reverend Graylin Hagler and D.C. Ferguson activist Eugene Perrier, who ran on the, on the statehood Green Party ticket. In the D.C. Attorney General race, Edward Smitty Smith, and some would include in this category the successful candidacy of Alyssa Silverman, who was elected along with Anita Bonds in the D.C. Council at Large race. But what do Tuesday's results mean for electing progressive candidates in the DMV and particularly in D.C.? Uh, what lessons, we're going to talk about what lessons, maybe hard ones, were learned by activists working on this election. With me to unpack these ideas, and the election is a very hip unlikely panel for a show on politics, I think, right? On the line is Lester Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science and Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University and the author of Stare in the Darkness, The Limits of Hip-Hop and Black Politics. Good morning, Lester. Hey, Esther. Here in the studio is Alicia Branson, a political consultant who recently worked on the Hagler for D.C. campaign. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you for having me. And Dane Jane Zara, an attorney and activist in Mount Pleasant and former co-chair of the D.C. Statehood Green Party, where she was recently working on the campaigns of Eugene Perrier and David Schwartzman. Welcome, Jane. Hello. <laughs> well, let's jump right in and deal with the shocker first. Um, Lester, Alicia, uh, maybe first uh, Lester and then Alicia, what happened to Brown? You know, did PG County, Montgomery County, and Baltimore just stay home? You know, Richard starts talking about the attitudes of the white electorate toward Brown. What happened to him in in Maryland? Um, from the data I've been exposed to, it looks like it's more the uh, that black folks stayed home. Uh, those three counties, you had a far lower turnout in uh, 2014 than you've had. I think the com I think in comparison, not to 2012, because you don't really want to compare off-year elections to presidential elections, but to 2010. Uh, I think that's what did it. Okay. Did you have some thoughts on that, Alicia? Yeah, I have the same uh, data as well, about 106,000 less votes in 2010 from 2010 in Baltimore City, Prince George's County, and Montgomery County. There was just a lack of enthusiasm for both candidates as well. Right. Did you have any anecdotal experiences actually kind of, you know, working as a consultant and kind of having your ear to the ground in terms of, of how voters felt about Brown? Yeah, I would say from the campaign strategy perspective, negative campaigning when everyone's already received so many mailers from the primary from various candidates was not the smartest decision. So you're talking about the fact that, I mean, I've heard it said that Brown kind of went on the attack and he didn't talk as much about himself as he should have. He talked more about Hogan and what how Hogan was horrible. Yes, absolutely. Okay. The... Um, Lester, from where you are in Baltimore, uh, did you hear kind of any feedback from the community about whether, you know, what they needed to hear from Brown and maybe what they didn't hear? You know, I had a, a random encounter. Uh, I take public transportation to work every day and back home. And I was on the bus, 
And the bus driver, <laughs> he was like a comedian. I mean, he was like cracking on everybody. I'd never seen anything like it. It was just, but he, he, you know, he asked me what I did. And I told him I was a political scientist. He started talking about the election. And he started talking about how that it was highly unlikely he would vote for Brown. And the thing that loomed large for him was, uh, was just the idea of taxes. But that was the, that's when I knew. I was like, oh, this guy's in trouble. You know, when the bus driver, you know, I, and granted, it's not, it's not a significant sample. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> it's a sample of one, of one comedian bus driver. But that's when I knew that he was in trouble. And I, and although I'd seen, you know, I, I would see a lot of, uh, of flyers and the like, you know, on my way to work, you know, uh, you know, supporting the ticket. There was no discussion at all about what progressive policies that the can that Brown presented that would really make people's lives better, right? So it, it, in that vacuum, you know, people are going to stay home. And and those issues are very serious in Baltimore. You know, we're talking about unemployment. We're talking about a community that was recently galvanized to defeat, um, a, you know, a, well, not recently at this point, but to defeat a jail that was very controversial. And, you know, people are really dealing with serious social issues there. So to have no candidate really address those things or I, I would imagine be very serious for the electorate there. Oh, yeah, that's real talk, right? I mean, we expect... We expect our elected officials to do something for us. I mean, now, now granted, uh, we don't always expect them to do material stuff for us, right? So, for example, a lot of people vote for Obama. Uh, a lot of poor folk vote for Obama uh, in part because of just the idea that having somebody that looks like them in office is kind of enough. But, um, but when you're talking about, like, a state-level election, and it, particularly in a small state like Maryland, where you can kind of see the results of local governance, it's just you need something more than just kind of a black guy on the ticket. You know, I, I read somewhere, and Danny, this, uh, sorry, Danny, Alicia, this might be in a question that's more up your alley, but I read somewhere that Republicans across the country had finally learned how to do the ground game, and in terms of getting out their voters, is do you think that's true in Maryland? Did that happen here? Well, Hogan's campaign had one clear message, and that was no new taxes. And especially with the rain tax, they were very efficient in um, angering the right people at the right time when they were speaking to voters. Tell us about, about the it. tell us about the rain tax oh, for those of us who aren't. Yeah, the rain tax is um, a tax on stormwater runoff to help clean the bay, and everyone wants to clean the bay, but people don't want to pay for it. Wow. essentially wow so. so he came out against that and kind yeah. of hung it around brown's neck wow yeah okay all right so what kind of uh oh you know lester you mentioned the obamas and and what is interesting to me is that both president obama michelle obama and i think the clintons actually campaigned for brown and you know there was some turnout but it wasn't like this huge boost for him apparently yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's, people need to really, I mean, it, it's, it's, black people are kind of in a, a really, really tough position, you know, and working class communities and Latinos are really, really in a tough position, and that the political climate in general doesn't seem to allow for the types of progressive uh, transformations that would really make their lives substantively better, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um but yet, yet and still, at the same time, at the same time, uh, 
they have a sense that the other guys are like the, that the that the uh, that the Republican Party is not just not for them, but is actively against them, and uh, so it, it, they're in a really really tough position. And uh, right, right. So. Right. So here's the thing. So here's the thing. And I know, I know, I know I'm, radio, I'm, I'm on radio, so, and I apologize for being kind of scattered. I want to go back to Pookie. <laughs> so let's go back to Pookie. So when Obama actually comes and speaks to Maryland voters, it's in Maryland that he actually talks about Cousin Pookie. Mm-hmm. Right? It's in Maryland that he actually brings the figure of Cousin Pookie that we thought had been kind of sort of killed in 20, when 2008 back to life. What this suggests is it's not just that, uh, that um, I mean, we can say, wow, Obama comes out to organize for voters, uh, they should turn out, or, um, you know, organize for Brown, they should turn out. Clinton comes out to get voters uh, for Brown, they should turn out. But what's the substance of what he's saying, right? If the best that Obama can say is you need to get Cousin Pookie out to vote, then Brown, then Brown should have lost, right? Because it's not just about... To what degree a political elite comes and talks to black people, urging them to vote at the last minute? It's like, okay, what type of policies are you articulating that your candidate supports that are going to make your lives demonstrably better? Yeah, what have you done for Pookie lately, right? Right, right. I mean, and the thing, and and here's the deep thing: we know that Pookie, and and then for those for the small number of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Pookie is kind of the stereotypical lazy black, often male voter. We know that Pookie turned out more in 2010 than he did in, um, than he did in the last midterm election. Okay. So even, right. So even the use of the term Pookie is an is an empirical falsehood. All right. Now, Alicia and Jane here in D.C. You know, we saw the Democratic, you know, what I think is an entrenched Democratic machine prevail, even with a lackluster candidate. You know, mm-hmm. so. One of the things I'm interested in is, you know, can progressives beat the Democratic machine here, which is so entrenched in the black community and may be boosted by kind of the large population of local or national government employees here? So so what are your thoughts on that, Jane? Well, I, I agree. There is there's so much competition for so little political space in D.C. Uh, for a myriad of reasons that it, it makes people that are uh, – truly campaigning for uh, and addressing the needs of the people unpopular and drowned out. Um, If you looked at the substance of, for instance, the at-large campaign and looked at um, what people were campaigning for, you heard there, or even uh, the mayoral race when the people talked about, the the candidates talked about homelessness or affordable housing, you really didn't hear any substantive proposals about how to address them except from the candidates like Reverend Hagler and Eugene per year. Um, and there's a purity involved with that, but it's it's got to go beyond a soapbox on the street. It's got to eventually resonate in with the ballot box. Um, in term, there's a lot of money in these elections. If you look at the span of, of money spending for at-large elections, Eugene per year had $20,000, got over 10,000 votes. That's a pretty admirable campaign. The higher-end candidates, over $150,000, so break down the votes for that. Um, as well as the uh, the sweat equity that goes into the campaigns for candidates such as Reverend Hagler and Eugene Perrier, where people were on the streets, people were at the polls, um, the 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 
information going out address the needs of the people. And um, I think the voter turnout, if you look at the disparity or differences in voter turnout, also reflect the, the last speaker's comments about how um, African Americans in D.C. were uh, less likely to turn out. Ward 8 had, um, uh, let's see, uh, 25, less than 25 percent turnout. Ward 1, which is not predominantly white yet, is highly gentrifying. There's some resistance there. It's a pretty progressive ward, had about uh, 33 percent maybe mm -hmm. turnout. So, uh, and then if you look at how people voted on issues like uh, the marijuana, the uh, legalization for marijuana, the highest uh, pro votes were Ward 1, and the lowest mm -hmm. were Ward 8. So, it, you know, it's, it, it causes us to um, speculate and, and analyze what happened, but I, I think maybe there will come a time where people will address, address the issues of injustice. We have to get on the streets more. It, it clearly worked in, in, um, in, in my area, in Mount Pleasant. You get on the street more in Columbia Heights. We had speakouts about homelessness, um, went to developers, asked them where the affordable housing was. It resonated with people on the streets. They got up and spoke. And I, I think people are waking up. It's just uh, it gets drowned out by all this money. You know, speaking of money, it seemed to me, and I don't have the figures like you might, that Alyssa Silverman's campaign had a lot of money. I mean, early out, I saw, like, signs all over the place. I saw, you know, Google ads. I saw all this stuff. And so a lot of the conventional wisdom was that, wisdom was that Silverman would win because the rest of the 15 total candidates would split the black vote. You know, so wasn't this true in the end? That's part one of the question. And second part is that, you know, with the Democratic Party winning such a loyal support from the black community, you know, could it be that all of our independents elected in this district will be white? Um, all are, oh, I see. Well, uh, if you're speaking about uh, maybe Catania's history where he came in as a Republican, same with Carol Schwartz, right? Came in as Republican. Uh, he, you know, because of the uh, Bush record on gay rights issues, um, then became an independent and is, you know, a, a very um, uh, a capable politician, um, uh, very, very forceful, but he couldn't, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't defeat the uh, Muriel Bowser machine, which really, um, you know, I listened to the mayoral debate on ETA, I hate to say it, but um, I listened to that, and at least Catania admitted that there were between 10 and 20 percent homeless in D.C. I mean, that kind of honesty, I don't know what he planned on doing about it, I really didn't hear any follow-up to that. But, you know, when you have candidates like Muriel Bowser, who's now going to be our mayor-elect, talk about um, fighting for affordable housing and fighting for the rights of the homeless, she nimbied a shelter in Ward 4 when they were closing the class of shelter in Ward 1. You see all the shelters in the most Caucasian wards getting closed, the public shelters. Men's shelters, where are they? Wards 5, 7, 8. They're um, trying to repurpose CCNV now. You can define that. They're trying to stop the transportation of the homeless uh, in these warehouse districts back to the city. You know, the, the business interest district downtown. There's this orchestrated effort. And you really didn't hear the mainstream candidates address that. As a matter of fact, they give it a tacit, if not an overall, endorsement. I mean, uh, let's uh, talk about the relationship between Donatelli and Muriel Bowser. I, I'm curious she didn't bring that up at the mayoral debate when she talked about homelessness. I, I'm curious about that. And okay. I think a lot of voters are. Okay, well, we're going to keep talking about Tuesday's election here in the DMV. This is Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition with Esther Averam.
on WPFW Washington, 89.3, your station for jazz and justice in the nation's capital. I'm talking about the left and Tuesday's elections with political strategist Alicia Branson, attorney Jane Zara, and Professor Lester Spence of Johns Hopkins University. After this break, the Republicans say take back, well, we say fight back. And it will be your turn. We'll be taking your calls at 202 what do Tuesday's results mean for electing progressive candidates in the DMV and particularly in D.C.? What lessons may be hard ones were learned by progressive activists working on this election? And maybe what was the role of race? We'll be right back. This hammer's gonna be the death of me This hammer's gonna be the death of me Hammer's gonna be the death of me Hammer's gonna be the death of me John Henry said to his captain Now a man ain't nothing but a man Before I your steel drill bring me down I will die with that hammer in my I'll die with that hammer in my hand I'll die with that hammer in my hand I'll die with that hammer in my hand John Henry said to his shaker Now shaker why don't you sing I'm shaking from my hip on down Now don't you hear that cold steel ring Don't you hear that cold steel ring Don't you hear that cold steel ring Don't you hear that cold steel And welcome back to the Thursday edition of Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. During the break, we heard a little of John Henry by Cecile McLaurin Salvant, who performed Saturday night at the Ice Street Synagogue with pianist Aaron Deal. And we actually had a chance to talk to her, uh, talk to both of them after the show, and maybe we can play a little of that interview next week. I'm Esther Averam, your Thursday host, and I'm talking about progressives and electoral politics with political strategist Alicia Branson. Attorney Jane Zara and Professor Lester Spence. And it's your turn at 202-588-0893 is the number to call to weigh in on today's discussion. What do Tuesday's results mean for electing progressive candidates in the DMV and particularly in D.C.? What lessons may be hard ones were learned by activists working on this election? And what was the role of race? I think we have a couple of callers. Let's go to our first caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I, uh, the, the 
you, uh, your, your first name and where you're calling from? Uh, Mo, I'm calling from Maryland. Okay. And, uh, uh, the, the conversation reminds me of uh, a debate that I saw uh, a while back uh, regarding Malcolm X, and I think James Foreman, James, James Farmer were on the panel and a couple other guests. And the commentator asked, uh, about a question about black leadership. And everyone gave the response. And then Malcolm said uh, directly, you know, what black leadership? And uh, I think this is germane to the conversation at hand when we talk about progressives. And I'm so glad that the young, that the lady that uh, spoke earlier about poverty and poor folk said, you know, my question is, what progressed, you know, not one Democrat, not one person from a congressional black caucus said anything or one positive piece of kernel of information regarding the genocide in Israel. Uh, the Only a handful of congressional black caucus members supported okay. the demilitarization of police departments right after Ferguson. Okay. I'm sorry. We, we just have a number of callers, but, but thank you. I think we get your point, and, and it's appreciated. Thank you for calling in. Let's go to our next caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hey, this is uh, Bosco T. from D.C. All right, Bosco T. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say I want to say something in my comment. First of all, I, I'm so glad to see the station backed in, 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 its, in, in a strength, strengthened position to make these kind of programs happen. Now, and support the station, please. Everybody, support the station. Uh, what I want to say is this, though. You know, I don't even know if the candidates I voted for even won their at-large seats yet. And uh, I'm waiting to hear. I didn't hear. I just got in on the conversation. But uh, like the gentleman said, you know, poor folks are still being minimized and trivialized. I mean, this, this thing where I went into a school in D.C. Let me give you a good example of how this is working. I went into a school in D.C. up on Capitol Hill. They said, that we spend too much time with the low-achieving children. That is totally opposite from, I'm telling you, this principal brought in a, some folks from Connecticut, and he sat there and told them that we spend too much time on, on low-achieving children. And mm. then he said, in the beginning of the day, they were saying things like, poverty doesn't matter. And I couldn't believe my ears. I said, what? Why are you, why are you telling them? And then they went on to, the principal actually told them, I heard her say these things. Okay. That don't tell the children, don't tell the parents that we're teaching to the test. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that comment. Uh, 202-588-0893 is the number to call. We're talking about progressive politics and the elections this past Tuesday. And uh, we are going to go to our next caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Hi, Rick, D.C. Hi, Rick. Hi. Uh, it's great discussion thus far. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to probably to put out front, and that is until you get big money out of the elections, the elections are for naught. And the other thing is that uh, in order to have a plebiscite that can be effective, they have to be educated. So those are two areas <laughs> that the rich control and that they're not relinquishing any power. And both Democrats and Republicans are, 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 are leaning into this. They're, they're not 
trying to get finance, uh, campaign finance reform passed or dealt with, uh, and a, a number of things. And then we, we have totally forgotten. There's a, there's a, a 800 pound gorilla called immigration in the room that none of these guys addressed. Not only did, didn't address all of the wars and the fact that people are starving and are homeless and that we don't have health care, uh, they, they, they still, so, so what happened with this election? Well, the guys got, or America got what the rich paid for. And the rich paid for this election, and it's clearly, I mean, even with our mayor election, we had two great candidates in your, uh, and, uh, and Hagler. But both of them did not have the money to run like Muriel Bowser or, or Catania. So we, we, we have to do something about that. And we must educate our, uh, electorate if we want people to vote. Okay. Thank you. 202-588-0893. We're talking about the elections and progressive politics. 202-588-0893. Let's go to our next caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Okay. If it's me, I'm Perry. I'm calling from uh, Brightwood Park. Good morning. Good morning to you and your guests. Um, and disclaimer, I'm, I'm a registered statehood green. Uh, I, I'm calling just quickly to give the analysis on the wins and losses, especially in the context in which you put it. In D.C., Mario Bowser won because black people in D.C. are trying to avoid the plantation master complex of having a white male governing over them. Bowser enjoyed a perfect combination of being a fresher face um, and and um, being black in a predominantly black city. Over in Maryland, Anthony Brown he won, oh, I lost, excuse me, he lost because um, there was no black person in the race. Uh, you know, when you when you lose Montgomery County and you shaky in PG County, you know, you, you know something's wrong there. And then What do the you mean there was no black person in the race? Uh, Anthony Brown's brother, Beige. And, uh, you know, he, he, he looked like a... Um, like a Adrian Fenty, for lack of better words. And I, I'm, you may be thinking I'm speaking in appearance, but more so um, the non-threatening uh, Deval Patrick type um, of politician, which uh, I just I don't see that as being effective when you have um, big money, Citizens United money, being poured into Maryland elections now. Wow. Okay. Two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. It sounded, Alicia, like you wanted to say something. I'm, you know, I want the callers to weigh in, but it sounded like you really, you really uh, got really animated with that call. Did you want to say something? Well, Go ahead. Up just, to the mic. Just that Hogan raised a lot less money than Brown oh, with okay. that last comment. Well, okay. So the Democratic so. machine was well-funded in Maryland, so that's not an excuse. Yeah, it wasn't a question of raising more money. Okay. All right. So uh, I think we have a few more callers on the line. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. This is Nat. Go ahead, speak up a little bit. Good oh, yeah. morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm calling from Prince George's County. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks. Um, well, I think, like, a lot of people are really missing the point here. Like, most people, one, let me say I'm an independent, so I couldn't vote. Um yeah, and you could yeah, you could vote. You could vote. <laughs> there are a lot of independents who voted. Yeah, you could still vote. Maybe not in the 
primary, but right. in the general election. So, man, you lost your vote. You could have went out and voted. But actually, what I was going to say was, like, I exercised my right of protest by not voting because the candidates, mm-hmm. um, none of the candidates are addressing the real issues. Like, the Democrats, and really there's only one party, so... Yeah. But the Democrats, are, like the, the the Republicans have like long-range planning, PNAC, all these different strategies that they put out there, their base knows about, and they're working towards it, long-range. Long there's no counter. Like there's, It's almost like a one-sided war. The Democrats and so-called progressives, what are their long-range strategies? What are, what are they trying to galvanize and mobilize people to do. You don't hear any of that coming from down the, from the Democratic side or the progressive side. You always hear about what the Republicans have been planning and plotting and what they're executing. Okay. Well, I think you want to say something, Jane? Yeah, if I may. Um, I, not to confront the last caller, but I, I just wanted to correct the record. At least in D.C., the statehood Green Party candidates, both Eugene Prier and David Schwartzman, had, you know, these 10-point programs that substantively address these things, like um, first source enforcement, we're keeping jobs in D.C., um, making housing affordable, banning the box, right, stopping the unemployment of the criminalized. It's like 50% unemployment uh, for returning citizens in D.C. And we know, you know, that the ban the box uh, passed by the district, which makes it illegal to have the box when you're impl- applying for employment positions to say whether you've ever been convicted or arrested, however it's stated from state to state. So that has been taken out of D.C. But the Chamber of Commerce and some of our political leaders have successfully kept it out of the commercial sector. So as long as there's this disparity, you know, people are going to have to fight for it, and the progressives are fighting for it. They're fighting for it in D.C., such as taxing the rich, legalizing marijuana, and a public bank. So uh, the message is out there. It's just being muddled by, by the money. Okay, you're listening to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment. I'm Esther Averam, and we're talking about progressive politics here in the DMV. We're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to come right back. Nobody. Give me nothing. Open up the door. I'll get myself. 
And welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground edition. We're talking about Tuesday's election and progressive politics here in the DMV. In the studio, I have Jane Zara, attorney and activist, and also Alicia Branson, a political consultant who worked on the D.C. for Hagler campaign. Also, Jane worked with Eugene per year and uh, David Schwartzman. Uh, on the line, I think uh, Lester Spence is still with us from John Hopkins University, political science professor there and author. So, uh, but we also are having your calls, and, and we're going to get back to our callers in a minute. I wanted to ask you, Jane, though, about the impact of D.C. statehood, Green Party, on local politics. Um, you know, it's been a fixture here for a while. We we know those candidates run, but they haven't been successful except at the ANC level, right? Yeah. So, so you know, what kind of force is it having here? Is it is it is it holding back progressive politics? Is it kind of capturing it and kind of keeping it in a certain bubble that isn't able to reach a larger group of people? What what's what do you think? You know, I know you're with the party, so you may not be objective, but you know, some people feel that you know, you know, they they have questions about the impact of the. D.C. statehood green, green Yeah, party. no, I, it's a good question. It's a fair question, and it behooves everyone to ask that, especially people in the statehood Green Party or progressives, why they're not uniting. Uh, it, it's not happening in a vacuum, and I'm not scapegoating now, but, I mean, the two-party system, which is a one-party corporate entity uh, pretty much around the country and in D.C., um, pretty much, although, you know, differences are eked out during the elections, pretty much it, it behooves them to keep third parties invisible. Okay, so third parties can be drowned out. There are a number of third parties and there are a number of progressive voices. They just don't have the means to reach all of the people. Um, in, in Maryland, for instance, I know the last caller said that um, they were progressive from Maryland. Margaret Flowers was mentioned earlier in the news today. Margaret Flowers is Green Party. Kevin Zeese is Green Party. There's a vibrant Green Party movement in Maryland, but again, now we have, for close races, there's always the spoilers. So the the Green Party is scapegoated when elections are lost, and what we're trying to do, actually, is, is broaden um, the arena of debate. And if that brings us unpopularity right now, and because we don't have public finance, so you're going to always have the disparity in money, the best we can do is get qualified, articulate people on the ballot that represent the community, that are from the community, and work with organizations um, and work with community groups to help bring the issues that are really impacting people to the fore. And that has happened. I mean, Statehood Green Party people work with groups around the city, okay. Empower DC, you know, a number of groups, and, and, and fight against, um, fight courageously for issues. Okay, let's go back to our callers. I want to make sure I try to get everyone in. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Tespa, calling from, good morning, calling from Arlington. Good morning, Tespa. Well, uh, progressives in DMV should protect the elderly, the children, and the poor. And besides that, they have an international obligation. That obligation is uh, uh, repressive and very arrogant governments all around the world are using D.C. government platforms to make themselves appear uh, responsible government and acceptable government. Their next step is to go to the White House after using the D.C. platform. And we progressives in the DMV 
should deny dictators from all around the world, including the Ethiopian dictators, not to use the DC government platform to appear a uh, good government. For example, the Ethiopian government keeps 80,000 political prisoners, including lots of female uh, political prisoners, one, including one who developed uh, cancer in prison, uh, 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 breast cancer in prison, and she is not allowed to get treatment. Okay. Thank you so much for always reminding us the links between what's happening locally and what's happening internationally. Uh, I think we have another caller. Just say your first name and where you're calling from. Uh, yeah, my name is Tahuti. Uh, I'd like to say hotel to you and your guests and the PFW listening audience, and I'm calling from Alexandria, Virginia. Yes, as long as we have voting machines that uh, don't give us a receipt, we still have problems of people voting for one person and the voting machine flips to another person. As long as we have the Electoral College, as long as we have gerrymandering, and as long as we have money controlling the political system, we can forget it. We're way past voting right now, and but it's not. It's too early to start shooting. So we have to boycott the whole political system and start our own systems of survival in our own political systems, beginning with the independent parties who cannot uh, get equal time uh, and, uh, and get their messages equally distributed among the people, including the Green Party and other parties. So we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're really just fanning flames for our own demise when we continue to participate in a system that is totally corrupt and it's just maintaining the status quo. Okay, thank you for calling. You know, there's um, there's some discussion here around uh, this very same issue around ballots. Do you want to say something, Alicia? Uh, provisional balloting in Virginia and the cumbersome nature of it mm -hmm. and how, how Warner's can, uh, election right now hangs in the wings because of the provisional balloting situation there. Uh, it's, it's what I heard. Oh, that was Jane. That was Jane. Okay, yeah. thank so, you. Yeah. No, but... Yeah, in Virginia right now, until tomorrow at noon, they're going to be IDing um, provisional ballots. Yesterday, I was in the Fairfax County um, Democratic office with some people. They're working very hard there. Every uh, ballot counts. That's really the message there. Okay. Well, you know, we are really running out of time. We have had such a uh, gr great time today, and, you know, I really... Uh, appreciate my guests. Um, that'll do it for us. This is Thursday's Community Watching Comment, the On the Ground Edition. I'm your Thursday host, Esther Vam, and I want to thank my guests, political strategist Alicia Branson, attorney Jane Zara, and professor and author Lester Spence. I know, Lester, you've been on the line. I want to ask you about the the the, inter the national issues around voter suppression, but maybe we'll get to that another show. I'm with that. All right. Okay. Thanks to my engineer, Mike Nacella, and thank you so much for listening and calling in and taking on the ground over our goal during the fun drive. Thank you so much for, for helping our show and the whole station. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. And remember, this Sunday, November 9th, will mark three months since Darren Wilson shot dead Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and still no arrest. Now stay tuned for Oscar Muhammad with the news, followed by Dr. Nick on the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues. Krista Property, get, get better, get well. Raise your voice. Peace.